First of all, these millionaires and billionaires, they already have enough money. Jeff Bezos is not doing what he's doing for the money. The news has broken the internet. There are memes floating around. Amazon has faced criticism from workers over their willingness to accommodate basic human needs, like using the bathroom. Workers are afraid to go to the bathroom. Very quickly, James, you said you found urine bottles. You can't go to the bathroom. Which means they wear diapers. Well, why would he allow this to happen? This is bad. What he does is he collects them and takes it for himself. What's, what's his problem? Why does he do that? Why does he do that? I don't know. But now the big question is, what is he doing with it? Where are they going with it? What are they doing with it? They're going to use it. Why else do they collect it? Jeff Bezos had the luxury of being filthy, filthy. So there was just something weird. He was obviously, he had some fetish. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memes as Politics. I'm your host, Joshua Citarella. I wanted to open tonight's show with the frank admission that I no longer plan to go outside. I may or may not get vaccinated. I don't want the government to put a microchip in my body, but also I don't plan on going outside. And uh, I've realized through this, I've realized through the last year that um, whatever is wrong with me or atypical upstairs uh, is thriving in this environment. And I feel like the playing field has finally been leveled. I feel like other people are now forced to participate in the world that I'm accustomed to and the world that I'm used to participating in. So I don't really care about going outside to art galleries and, and shit like that again. So I'm totally fine if uh, this continues forever. In fact, I prefer it. I'm not being ironic. I'm actually, I think, I think this is better. I think it's better. Yeah, I don't, like, I don't like having to go to events and pretend that I get along with people. I don't like having to pretend that I have the same interests as them. A lot of these people I actively dislike. So uh, fuck them. <laughs> at, least, at least I can be honest about what I think. Actually, not ironically. Yeah, yeah. This has been an incredibly busy month. There's so much, so much going on, so much to plug. I recently spoke to Matt Dryhurst and Holly Herndon at the Interdependence podcast. That should be out. I believe they do early access, so possibly uh, next week, probably shortly after this is made available, that podcast will go up on the public feed. I have another article that's coming out in, I don't know, a few days from now. It's going to be after this podcast. They might actually, coincidentally, they might coincide. Yeah, what else? What else? Uh, also, work up at Anonymous Gallery. But tonight, I think we're going to keep this a little bit more casual. I want to give people who listen to the podcast a little bit of a Twitch stream experience. Let them know more or less what we get up to while we're streaming on Twitch. Keep it uh, a little bit more off the cuff. I think I want to be a little bit looser with this podcast uh, in particular. Let's do a quick rundown of the topics for tonight's show. We're going to do a brief recap of the study we read in depth on the stream a few weeks back. Does platform migration compromise content moderation? This is a study from uh, Cornell University that was released in October of 2020. 
some interesting findings in there. We'll give a few thoughts in response to that. Additionally, we're going to look into the original definition of the PMC. You've probably heard this term before. Uh, it's especially popular now. I tracked down the original issue of Radical America. I believe it's from 1971. It's a pretty slippery term, so I think it'll be useful to actually go back and revisit how did they define it in its original context. That would be useful. Uh, after that, we're going to take a listener Q&A. I put a Q&A in my stories on Instagram, and I got some, um, <laughs> well, some interesting responses. So we'll see how those turned out. I think that'll be maybe a good intro for people to understand um, what is it like, a day in Josh's DMs. Yeah, that would be, that's an interesting experience to have for sure. After that, I want to talk about Ella Emhoff and the crisis of counterculture. This is going to break in a few interesting ways in the very near future. So I'm looking now on the screen. Let me share my image with the live stream. I'm looking at the cover of Radical America. Let's get a date on this. Is it from 71? No, sorry, it's 77. Volume 11, number two, March through April 1977, Radical America. And on page seven, you have an essay called The Professional Managerial Class by Barbara and John Ehrenreich. So we're going to go through this original document, and we're going to get a firm definition on what the PMC actually is. You probably hear this term referring to, how would I summarize it? I guess you would say white-collar workers, knowledge workers, certainly the media class. The media class uh, would fall under the category of the PMC. PMC doesn't exactly mean middle class, but it does mean managers. So um, I think when people reference the PMC, they're referring to a specific slice of the population, which has some level of expertise, maybe works in media, works in some type of a technocratic field that involves higher education as a prerequisite. So... Certainly the interests of the PMC is vastly overrepresented in the media class, but it's something that is, is frequently debated, especially um, recently. I should, full disclosure, confess, I find this term to be very useful. I use it all the time. Um, but we'll say there are orthodox Marxists in the Discord that sometimes take issue with PMC because it's not specifically bourgeoisie, it's not specifically proletariat, and is there really a class that's in the middle and, and all these types of things? Um, yes, there there are. There's many of different gradations of class. I think, I think that's, uh, <laughs> for me, it's pretty straightforward. But I think because PMC is used to mean so many different things, it would benefit us to go back to the 1977 version and just read, what the fuck is this thing? Like, what does it actually mean? Okay, so we're looking here. Let me share my screen. We're looking at page 13 of Radical America, and it literally says a definition. So <laughs> we're just going to learn what the fuck the professional managerial class really is. We define the professional managerial class as consisting of salaried mental workers who do not own the means of production and whose major function in the social division of labor may be described broadly as the reproduction of capitalist culture and capitalist class relations. Okay, so far so good. 
Their role in the process of reproduction may be more or less explicit, as with workers who are directly concerned with social control or the production and propagation of ideology, e.g. teachers, social workers, psychologists, entertainers, writers of advertising copy and TV scripts, etc. Okay, that's a, that's a pretty direct allegory for uh, clickbait and think piece writers today, right? That, that seems to track so far. Or it may be hidden within the process of production, as is the case with the middle-level administrators and managers, engineers, and other technical workers whose function, as Gores, Steve Margelin, Harry Braverman, and others have argued, are essentially determined by the need to preserve capitalist relations of production. Okay, so the manager of the shop floor, engineers, uh, maybe people who write uh, algorithms, uh, this kind of thing. Thus, we assert that these occupational groups, cultural workers, managers, engineers, and scientists, etc., share a common function in the broad social division of labor and a common relation to the economic foundations of society. The PMC, by our definition, include people with a wide range of occupations, skills, income levels, power, and prestige. The boundaries separating it from the ruling class above the working class below are fuzzy, In describing the class standing of people near the divide separating the PMC from other classes, e.g. registered nurses, welfare caseworkers, engineers in routine production or inspection jobs at the lower end, middle levels of corporate and state bureaucratic managers at the upper end, we must emphasize two aspects of our definition of class. First, in Paul Sweezy's words, quote, it would be a mistake to think of a class as perfectly homogenous internally and sharply marked off from other classes. Actually, there is a variety within the class, and one class sometimes shades off very gradually and almost imperceptibly into another. Second, occupation is not the sole determinant of class, nor even the sole determinant of the relation to the means of production. Yeah, people in the chat are talking about passive income. Um, Right, there's an important definition somewhere in here that if you were strictly defined as capitalist class, you could just live off the interest, right? You own things, the value they produce, the interest they generate, you live off of that, uh, you live off of those profits, you don't actually need to do the labor. And PMC seems to be defined by mostly being a salaried worker, not owning the means of production, not living off of interest, but also there's a type of technical expertise that goes into it. John Coogan in the chat brings up uh, Chomsky's reference, the political class, i.e. relatively educated, more or less articulate, plays some kind of role in decision-making. They're supposed to sort of participate in social life even as managers or cultural managers like teachers and writers and so on. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, it's something something in between. It's a uh, a professional managerial class. I oh, shit, I'm falling back into the definition. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's they're overrepresented. They're not exactly workers. They're not the owners of capital. I think there's an, a useful just scrolling back to this first paragraph here. Quote, whose major function in the social division of labor may be described broadly as the reproduction of capitalist culture and capitalist class relations. That is, that's very useful. Okay, continuing on to the next page here. The situation of the groups near the PMC working class border, we should note, is especially likely to be ambiguous. It is here that the process of, quote, de-skilling, of rationalizing previously professional tasks into a number of completely routinized functions requiring little training occurs. 
Moreover, a disproportionate number of people in these groups are women, for whom purely occupational criteria for class are especially inadequate. Despite the lack of precise delineation of the boundaries of the PMC, by combining occupational data and statistics on property distribution, we can make a very crude estimate of the class composition of U.S. society. By this estimate, about 65 to 70 percent of the U.S. population is working class, craftsmen, operatives, laborers, sales workers, clerical workers, service workers, non-college educated technical workers. Eight to 10% is the quote, old middle class, i.e. self-employed professionals, small tradespeople, independent farmers, etc. 20 to 25% is PMC. And one to 2% is ruling class. Huh. So they have uh, they have the one percent actually coined in 1977. Who the fuck needs Occupy Wall Street? <laughs> Get out of here, stinky anarchist! Get your fucking drum circle. Go somewhere else. Okay, so 1977, we already have one to two percent. That's they're halfway there. They're halfway there. That is, the PMC includes something like 50 million people in 77. Okay, let's get the let's get the numbers down again. 60 to 75 percent of the U.S. is working class in their definition. 8 to 10% is the, quote, old middle class. And this is, uh, I guess, Braverman's definition, they're saying. 20 to 25% is PMC. That's a much larger chunk than I had expected. Okay, and 1 to 2% is ruling class. That part makes sense for sure. The very definition of the PMC as a class concerned with the reproduction of capitalist culture and class relationships, precludes treating it as a separate sociological entity. It is in a sense a derivative class. Its existence presupposes, one, that the social surplus has developed to a point sufficient to sustain the PMC in addition to the bourgeoisie, for the PMC is essentially non-productive. Non-productive. Interesting. That does make a lot of sense if you're describing the PMC as someone who writes like think pieces about why Bernie Sanders is anti-Semitic, right? Totally non-productive, just capitalist relations, bourgeois propaganda, whatever. Second part of the definition, two, that the relationship between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat has developed to the point that a class specializing in the reproduction of capitalist class relations becomes a necessity to the capitalist class. That is, the maintenance of order can no longer be left to episodic police violence. <laughs> oh, shit. Wow, okay. Damn, this is, this is pretty fucking good. Historically, these conditions were met in the U.S. by the early 20th century. The last half of the 19th century saw, one, the development of an enormous social surplus concentrated in monopolistic corporations and individual capitalists, and two, an intermittent violent warfare between the industrial working class and the capitalist class. The possibility of outright insurrection was taken very seriously by both bourgeois and radical observers. At the same time, however, the new concentration and centralization of capital opened up possibilities of long-term planning. The refinement of, quote, management, essentially as a substitute for force, and the capitalist rationalization of both productive and consumptive processes. In the decades immediately following the turn of the century, these possibilities began to be realized. So this is, this is important here. When we talk about um, things like HR, we talk about, you know, what is this worker's psychological motivations? Why are they having difficulty assimilating to this workplace or whatever? 
essentially like all of all of psychology has now been shoehorned into workplace discipline right that if if you step out of line or you have a disagreement with your coworkers or you uh, you violate one of these completely archaic and uh, impossible to navigate rules it's because there's something wrong with you in your soul and so <laughs> The the solution is to send you to to work therapy where we have to like sit around in a uh, circle and everybody I don't know says why they're they're racist because their dad was mean to them or something like that. But never you're never going to get a wage increase. Don't worry about that. At the point of production, the concentration of capital allowed for the wholesale purchase of science and its transformation into a direct instrument of capital. Science and its practical offshoot engineering were set to work producing only progress in the form of new products, but new productive technologies which undercut the power of skilled labor. Labor was directly replaced by machines, or else it was, quote, scientifically managed in an effort to strip from the workers their knowledge and control of the productive process and to reduce their labor as much as possible to mere motion. Damn, living labor, dead labor. Wow. As we have argued elsewhere, these developments drastically altered the terms and conditions of class struggle, of class struggle at the workplace, diminished the workers' collective mastery over the work process, and undercutting the collective experience of socialized production. 2. The huge social surplus, concentrated in private foundations and in the public sector, began to be a force for regulation and management of civil society. The Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations, each worth tens of millions of dollars, appeared on the scene in the first decade of the 20th century. Local governments increased their revenues and expenditures fivefold between 1902 and 1922. Public education was vastly expanded, charity was institutionalized, public health measures gained sponsorship and the authority of law, etc. These developments were, of course, progressive in both the specific historical as well as the judgmental sense of the word, but they also represented a politically motivated penetration of working-class community life. Schools imparted industrial discipline and American values. Charity agencies and domestic scientists imposed their ideas of, quote, right living. Public health officials literally policed immigrant ghettos, etc. Number three, beginning in the 1900s, Increasing throughout the 20th century, monopoly capitalism came to depend on the development of a national consumer goods market. Items which had been made in the home or in the neighborhood were replaced by the uniform products of giant corporations. Services which had been an indigenous part of working class culture were edged out by commodities conceived and designed outside of the working class. For example, midwifery, which played an important role in the culture of European immigrant groups and rural black and white Americans, was outlawed and or officially discredited in the early 1900s to be replaced by professionally dominated care. Traditional forms of recreation, from participant sports to social drinking, suffered a similar fate in the face of the new commoditized and privatized forms of entertainment offered by the corporation, e.g. records, radio, spectator sports, movies, etc. The penetration of working-class life by commodities required and continues to require a massive job of education from schools, advertisers, social workers, domestic scientists, quote, experts in child-rearing, etc. As the dependence of American capital on the domestic consumer goods market increased, the management of consumption came to be as important as the management of production. To summarize, the effects of these developments on working-class life, 
The accumulation and concentration of capital, which occurred in the last decades of the 19th century, allowed for an extensive reorganization of working class life, both in the community and in the workplace. This reorganization was aimed at both social control and the development of a mass consumer market. The net effect of this drive to reorganize and reshape working class life was the social atomization of the working class, the fragmentation of work and workers in the productive process, a withdrawal of aspirations from the workplace into private goals, the disruption of indigenous networks of support and mutual aid, the destruction of autonomous working class culture, and its replacement by, quote, mass culture, defined by the privatized consumption of commodities, healthcare, recreation, etc. That's a big, that's a big category. That part is a little bit fuzzy to me. It is simultaneously with these developments in working class life, more precisely in the relation between the working class and the capitalist class, that the professional and managerial workers emerge as a new class in society. The three key developments listed above, the reorganization of the productive process, the emergence of mass institutions of social control, the commodity penetration of working class life, do not simply develop, they require the effort of more or less conscious agents. The expropriation of productive skills requires the intervention of scientific management experts. There must be engineers to inherit the productive lore, managers to supervise the increasingly degraded work process, etc. Similarly, the destruction of autonomous working class culture requires and calls forth the emergence of new culture producers, from physicians to journalists, teachers, admen, and so on. These new operatives, the vanguard of the emerging PMC, are not simply an old intelligentsia expanding to meet the needs of a complex society. Their emergence and force near the turn of the century is parallel and complementary to the transformation of the working class, which marks the emergence of monopoly capital. Thus, the relationship between the PMC and the working class is objectively antagonistic. The functions and interests of the two classes are not merely different, they are mutually contradictory. True, both groups are forced to sell their labor power to the capitalist class, both are necessary to the productive process under capitalism, and they share an antagonistic relationship to the capitalist class. We will return to this point in more detail later. But these commonalities should not distract us from the fact that the professional managerial workers exist as a mass grouping in monopoly capitalist society only by virtue of the expropriation of the skills and culture once indigenous to the working class. Historically, the process of overt and sometimes violent expropriation was concentrated in the early 20th century with the forced tailorization of major industries and the, quote, Americanization drive in working class communities, etc. The fact that this process does not have to be repeated in every generation, any more than the capitalist class continually reenact the process of primitive accumulation, creates the impression that the PMC working class relations represent a purely natural division of labor imposed by the social complexity and technological sophistication of modern society. The objective antagonism persists and represents a contradiction which is continually nourished by the historical alternative of a society in which mental and manual work are reunited to create whole people. It is because in this objective antagonism we are let to define professional and managerial workers as a class distinct from the working class. Where are we? I think we're almost, we're almost at the end here, these last two paragraphs. We should add, at this point that the antagonism between the PMC and the working class does not exist only in the abstract realm of objective relations, of course. 
Real-life contacts between the two classes express directly, if sometimes benignly, the relation of control which is at the heart of the PMC working class relation, teacher and student or parent, manager and worker, social worker and client, etc. The subjective dimension of these contacts is a complete mixture of hostility and deference on the part of working class people, contempt and paternalism on the part of the PMC. The interdependent yet antagonistic relationship between the working class and the PMC also leads us to insist that the PMC is a class totally distinct from the petty bourgeoisie, the old middle class of artisans, shopkeepers, self-employed professionals, and independent farmers. The classically petty bourgeoisie lies outside the polarity of labor and capital. It is made up of people who are neither employed by capital nor themselves employer of labor to any significant extent. The PMC, by contrast, is employed by capital, and it manages, controls, has authority over labor, though it does not directly employ it. The classical petty bourgeoisie is irrelevant to the process of capital accumulation and to the process of reproducing capitalist social relations. The PMC, by contrast, is essential to both. That makes pretty good sense now. I feel like, I feel like that, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad that we read it. Uh, is there anything new, especially new, that I learned? Um, my understanding of the context for this is that um, as part of post-Fordist capitalism, what is even evident in 1977 is that the level of power that the PMC wields in society is growing increasingly narrow, that the PMC is downwardly mobile. And I think we're seeing that quite literally now in that people are writing the Bernie Sanders' anti-Semitic think pieces for years and years, and they're getting $150 a pop. Right. So uh, <laughs> you're not actually really being paid. You're just you're just reproducing capitalist social relations. And so what the PMC is then left with is the option to make common cause with the proletariat, with labor, or to identify with a capitalist class. This looks like increasingly uh, savage applications of cutthroat tactics to ascend the corporate ladder versus a general restoration of universal programs and social democracy and, and this type of a thing, right? So all of us being engaged in some type of a creative sphere uh, are probably on the, um, maybe the middle to lower end of the, of the PMC. And uh, this stuff I think is in some ways directly relevant to the decisions that we make. So where are we here? Now I'm fucking, I'm already fucking lit up because I, I drank too much in the, <laughs> the immediate opening of the stream. Uh, oh shit, okay, listener Q&A. All right. God damn, I'm already fucking blasted. Okay. I'm just going to read these off of my phone. Where are we on time now? Well, it doesn't matter because I had to do, I had to do so much in the opener. We're probably way behind. Okay, in advance of this episode... In advance of this episode, I put uh, a, I put a an open question. Um, what it, what do you call it? What do you call the fucking thing? In advance of this episode, I opened up my DMs on Instagram and I asked people to submit questions to do a listener Q and A. So this will be maybe interesting. This will be a good tour of what my daily DM experience is like on social media. How about that? Response number one: Wiley Coyote says race war. 
Class Trader, great name. Class Trader asks, what is Do Not Research? Do Not Research is a community blog that we're launching. Well, it's already up. It's technically already up, but we'll be doing a more serious push for next week. We've got, I think, 12, maybe 14 works up there from the community. There's essays, there's video, there's a number of interactive works. Some of them have audio accompaniments. Stuia2046 says something about Telegram. There is, there is a Telegram, yes. Uh, there are many layers. There's, uh, there's constantly more lore to uncover. Goth Coffee Cup says, Where are the anti-vax to leftist funnel opportunities? Uh, <laughs> you're looking at them. I'm not going to get fucking vaccinated. Let the government put microchips in my body. Aaron Brockovich in The Guardian is already confirming that our dicks are shrinking because of chemicals in the water. Like, all, all of that shit is real. The frogs are real. Alex Jones was right. I'm not going to do it. The following question reads, The balkanization of the United States as a pathway forwards for socialism. That is the dumbest thing that I've ever fucking heard. That's literally, literally no one says that except Moldbug. Like, that, that stuff doesn't work. Why would you create... You can't do socialism by creating tax havens. Like, no one, no one actually says that. Following question. How to counter the ability the far right has now of interfering on worldview ontology? What? How to counter the ability the far right has now of interfering on worldview ontology? Is this fucking, like, Mad Libs? Theory salad? What does that even fucking mean? Snake says, Bonby. She is cute. Catboy Deleuze says, Hypothetically, would you subscribe to my OnlyFans? Haha, haha, unless? Rat asks, How much influence do you see social media having in the direct... Fuck, so drunk now. <laughs> How much influence do you see social media having in the context of how direct action events develop? Uh, a lot. I think like almost all of it, right? Like, yeah, every, everything now is, is, is a hashtag. We, have no, we no longer have political organizations. We just have hashtags. So um, yeah, direct action. Direct action is basically posting in real life. All right, uh... I'll keep, I'll keep an eye out for that uh, OnlyFans link, I guess. What are we doing now? Oh, God, this is going to be fucking brutal. This is going to be... Oh, no. Okay. So a few weeks ago, there were rumors circulating on Twitter that Ella Emhoff was hanging around on Canal Street, that the Secret Service was parked up and down Division Street, that she was hanging out at Clandestino and uh, Baccaro, you know, all of the familiar haunts in the Lower East Side. And I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a meme. I saw a bunch of uh, vans or Escalades parked on Canal, like, but that really could have been anything, you know. And then I heard from a few confirmed sources on the ground that it was, in fact, true. So this brings up a few complicated issues. I think it's a good case study that there is a serious crisis in the counterculture now, in 2021, and that Ella Emhoff embodies this contradiction. So I'm sure everyone is familiar with who that is, just in case you somehow have not heard of this, Ella Emhoff is the second stepdaughter 
uh, the stepkid of Kamala Harris. She's a graduate of the Parsons School of Design, majored in textiles. You've seen pictures of her wearing like a checkerboard sweater and like a weird pussy hat type of yarn project. It's um, it's really aesthetically hideous. It's it's very it's gruesome stuff. Uh, apparently there was a sketch about her on SNL. I haven't seen it. I don't plan to watch it. Um, that sounds excruciating. We've had, um, we've had a few examples of this. It's not, uh, it's not totally unheard of. The art world has overlaps with, uh, celebrity all the time. Uh, sometimes there's overlap with, uh, figures in government, right? If you're sufficiently rich, then you buy artwork. That, that just comes with the territory. But uh, this one hits especially close to home for a lot of people who are in our uh, extended uh, uh, Marvel characters extended universe of the Lower East Side art scene. <laughs> and so I, I think you have to phrase the question something like this. How can you really profess to be something different when Ella Emhoff goes to the same school, lives in the same neighborhood, goes to the same bars, and, yes, votes for the same person. I have all the screenshots of you motherfuckers. I've got every single one. So what kind of a radical counterculture do we have, right? What kind of a radical counterculture do we have now? Looking back at this, a lot of the counterculture um, seems to decline with the transformation of the music industry specifically but i'm not i'm not necessarily mourning the uh the music industry i don't i don't think that's really the issue here i think generally the question compressed is something like was the counterculture a radical alternative to late capitalism or was it a product of late capitalism right right you have to have a sufficient uh a sufficiently robust mainstream for there to be any sense of a counterculture for real. I mean, the UK punk counterculture, it, it only existed because they had such a generous welfare state, right? If you, could just, if you could just go on the dole and then drop out of the labor market, like, of course, you had all the free time to do like your weird music and to wear your like stinky jacket or whatever they do. It seems that the further along you get, the more depoliticized the counterculture becomes, right? That's the general trend, right? The 60s was supposedly the most radical, then the 80s was uh, kind of an underground radical scene, the 90s is um, uh, wishy-washy, and, and today it's almost non-existent. There's not really a shared uh, memeplex, there's not a shared group of signifiers, you know, things are, are fraught between right and left, uh, we don't necessarily have a robust counterculture. Today, in the age of the internet, everything is the counterculture. I think what we're, what we're witnessing is that in the rupture of 2016, really in this age of, of the development of niche internet cultures, there really is no such thing as counterculture because there's nothing that needs to go underground. In that rupture, in that shattering of the Overton window, Everything became explicit, so there's no reason to have this like coded language around what you're doing. Lil Nas X literally made this whole video just to piss off Christians, and then got all sad and whiny when people got mad. What the fuck? Yeah, I mean that's like it's planned, right? It's it's all it's all planned. 
Lil Nas X fucking sucks. This shit is so dumb. Being gay with the devil is only useful to piss off Christians. Like that, that's it. Lil Nas, oh God, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's uh, it's pointless culture war stuff. This is, this is what the art world does all the time. This is what they celebrate. It's just like the most, what will piss off the most people? If you wanted to cobble together elite aesthetics that were intended to alienate people, yeah, just uh, just just aim for traditional values. There's like there's nothing underneath it, right? And and this is the thing: you don't actually need anything underneath it. Okay, how do we get out of this bit? How do we get out of this bit? You're going to be faced with this question of basically living the exact same genre and lifestyle as Ella Emhoff, but you're trying to tell yourself that you are something different, that you have different beliefs, that you're part of a different political project, that you're aesthetic interventions are somehow more meaningful than this like hideous checkerboarded sweater or whatever it is that she's doing. And I think this is a useful wedge to insert into your thinking. The difference that we need to put forward is whether you want something more or you want something different. AOC wants to give everybody $2,000 checks, right? Nancy Pelosi wants to give everyone $1,200 checks. <laughs> it's the same thing, and there's a, a pretty clear two-dimensional gradient, and you can put the slider to one extreme or the other. What do you want that is actually different? What do you want that is different than Ella Emhoff? Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for emailing throughout the week prior. In advance of this webinar, we were asked to choose a piece of writing, a pre-existing piece of writing that touched on the topics of fluidity, in-betweenness, unfinishedness, transitions, processes, limbo, and progress. And I, I did look through a few things, but I felt it would be more apt for me to try and put together a few notes and summarize some of the conversations I've had with my students at uh, the various universities that I teach at um, about very similar topics, especially during this moment of the unforeseen pandemic <clears throat> and this, um, this interruption into education and um, into your art practice. So I have a little bit of an arc planned out here and we'll see Oh, did I, did I, I'm sorry, I must have, I must have accidentally muted myself here. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, I'll move my keyboard further away so I don't tap it by accident. Apologies. Um, I, I wanted to summarize a few of the conversations that I've had with students this semester and um, I guess put this into perspective for myself as well. So I'll watch the clock here so I don't go over. In general, the framing of the pandemic as an interruption into both education and an in art practice 
seems to imply that there's some type of a final context for for the work and that this is not the final context. And in most of these examples, at least in my experience, it's been something to the effect of there's a lack of a senior show or the senior show is put online. Um, Students often feel discouraged from making work. Uh, Many projects that were completed and then turned in part way of course, we're all struggling with uh, a little bit of cabin fever and often depression as well. So it's, it's difficult to create under these circumstances for sure. On top of that, resources that have become unavailable, people have had to reformulate their projects, especially if you don't have access to power tools and, and things like that. Um, we're now also coming up on, or we've just passed 10 years since I graduated from the School of Visual Arts where I studied photography. And it's beginning to dawn on me now that uh, the artist that I looked up to at that period, Lucas Blaylock, comes to mind as an artist who inspired me very much and continues to. I'm the age that those artists are now, and it's kind of difficult to not compare yourself <laughs> to to what they had done by that time. Um, so I've been looking back at the past 10 years uh, of my own practice and trying to figure out what was important. and. Um, you know, I just opened a show last week in, in Miami at Baz Fisher Invitational, and I find myself rather relaxed about a solo show that was a year in the making, and instead I'm experiencing a lot of stress based on an upcoming podcast with a 19-year-old meme poster. So uh, my priorities have significantly shifted in the last uh, few years, to say the least. But I, I wanted to lump these into uh, broadly two specific categories, or um, two general categories. That there's the artwork as the finished product, and then there's the things we make along the way. And in my 10-year, in hindsight, personal inventory, inventory of my practice and ideas, um, I've been looking a lot at uh, specifically 2012 of the jogging Tumblr, which if people are not familiar, this was a collaborative artist blog where people would upload these kind of improvised meme sculptures that were mostly made on the fly, shot with an iPhone, and then posted to the Tumblr with a title, a date, a material description as if they were a uh, quite serious piece of art. And at the time, many of us considered this to be something like a stepping stone to the real career, that you would get some visibility through the blog, and uh, eventually you'd get a solo show, you'd, you'd hone your art practice over the, the, the next few decades of your career, but um, that this was, you know, it was jogging, not the Olympics. Additionally, I've been looking back at 2015, which was the year of my second solo show, and I invested probably a year's worth of time, um, probably a year of rent of my own money to produce the show, an incredible amount of work that was hung that really covered salon style four walls of a humble size, relatively small gallery. Uh, the show was reviewed by prestigious critics, and um, almost none of it, maybe one or two pieces, remains on my website today. So, so these things have really been um, placed in very vivid contrast to me. And I guess what I'm taking out of it is that. We often don't know what the important work is while we're making it, and responding to the conditions that we're in is um, sometimes a more significant discursive contribution or aesthetic innovation, something of this sort, rather than 
what we have prefigured as the final context for the work. Um, the things that are on my syllabus today in the universities that I teach at um, are largely things that were the throwaway pieces and not the gallery work. Uh, and, and it's difficult to really understand what's going to be important until you are many years later. And this is something that as we progress and develop as artists, we um, <laughs> ideally we can hone over time. Uh, no one begins with a fully realized art practice. So that is, that is the most pressing thing in my mind um, in reference to the pandemic as interruption into your art practice and things, and things like that. The second thing that I want to bring up here and I think these two fold together uh, at the end, is that beyond your scope or beyond the scope of your development as an artist, um, there are a few underlying assumptions that I think most of us have envisioned something similar to the white cube or the gallery as the final context, most likely. You know, these are how senior exhibitions are, are held. This is how uh, I, I've shown most of my work, uh, this is where I prefer to show it, um, but we have some general assumptions of like what is the proper context for art that allows this space for contemplation and critical discussion and, and whatnot. But in general, uh, this also presupposes a certain type of society, a certain level of investment and financial latitude that seems to be increasingly narrowing. And for me, looking back at that year, specifically of 2015, that was the year that the emerging art bubble burst, especially in New York, and dozens of Lower East Side galleries closed. So this was really, in hindsight, um, not a slow evolution, but it was, it was very much a flash in the pan that was a formative experience. And today, I think these numbers are a little bit out of date, but in 2018, I believe, was this, uh, was this survey that the moving average for new galleries in Berlin is 0 0.9. Um, and, and 10 years ago, it was something like 10, <laughs> meaning that uh, 10 years ago, every one gallery that closed, 10 new ones would open. And today, for every 10 galleries that close, nine galleries open. So we're, we are trending downwards. So in general, what I'm, what I'm trying to frame here is that the context that we presuppose to show our work in seems to be getting more narrow. And this is most often the product of a American economy, in my case, but also a global economy, um, which mostly no longer exists and, and seems to have a very limited runway. And it seems to me that there's a type of end of history type of thinking here that the the context, the academies, the institutions that we show art in um, and that we assume our work will be properly entered into the canon and the institution via uh, that, that these things are, you know, in the grand scheme of things, historically contingent. And we are in this limbo space between the two different worlds right now. Uh, so in, in short, the finished context for art is becoming more scarce, and the frequency of these otherwise unforeseen crises is becoming more frequent. So to relate these two things back to each other, uh, and I realize I'm coming up on uh, the 10 minute mark, so I'll, I'll try and keep this uh, concise here. But to try and, and relate these back to each other, having this preconceived endpoint, or the finished product, the completed context, can often prevent us from fully investing our efforts into the work that we're making in the present. Um, it can prevent us from responding to the time in which we exist. And 
I guess the thing that I've really tried to emphasize for my students and for the conversations that I've had this year, looking at this a really unprecedented period and, and trying to keep the long view that for my students now, what will they look back on 10 years and be like, oh, that was that was the one, you know, it was it was that studio uh, day with jogging with the moldy beans when we were putting together these silly improvised sculptures and having really like a lot of fun and not taking it very seriously. Um, that was the innovation. That was the thing that I made my career on that required no overhead. And then there was also times where I invested literally all of the <laughs> max out my credit card producing work and oh this this is the big context this is going to be it um and it turns out you know in the you know the longer view of these things that was not the most impactful experience for for me as an artist and and in building a career so i want to i want to encourage people to free themselves or feel unburdened from this notion that you have to produce art for this context of, in this case, a senior exhibition that occurs in a gallery um, or, or will eventually be shown in a gallery, that this can be a way of perpetually deferring. It's an IOU for a future that may or may not happen, very likely will not happen. Um, and then that can prevent you from responding to the period that you're in now. I think in the in the long run of things, you'll find that those are the most uh, the formative, most essential works that you you may be able to produce in your career. Greetings, you Matrix One.